great to be with you guys. We're going to continue in our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. Uh, last Sunday, we, we took some time and looked at Paul's defense of justification by faith from the standpoint of personal experience. And, and what Paul did was he urged the Galatian believers to, to kind of look back and remember how the law had nothing to do with them becoming connected to Christ and uh, it didn't cause the Holy Spirit to, you know, to come down and, 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 and you know, regenerate them. Um, he, he wanted them to look at how the law had nothing to do with the suffering they were experiencing through persecution. It was a faith deal. Um, and he wanted them to, to remember or to at least focus on how obedience to the law had nothing to do with the supernatural love of God, that agapao love being manifested in their hearts and in the congregation. I mean, they just, these were lawless Gentiles, non-Jews. They had not the law of Moses. They had none of that. They knew nothing about it. God saved them. It had nothing to do with the law. And Paul's saying, that's your experience. You all know it. Let's not forget that as these Judaizers are, are trying to persuade you into believing and thinking that the law has something to do with it all. And uh, so that's what we focused on last week, last Sunday. Uh, it was a great time. Uh, in the next section, Paul, he takes them to a higher authority, an authority that's above experience. Now, I think in our culture today, the highest experience you can have is feelings. and exp uh, the, the highest level of anything in our culture, I should say, is feelings and experience. But the highest actual level of anything of authority or of anything to pull from or look at is rock-solid objective truth, right? Truth, truth prevails above experience. And so experience is important. It's a good thing. God has given us experiences for a reason. But now Paul saying that's a good, but I'm going to take you to the better thing to look at here in terms of, of justification by faith. And he's going to take them to Scripture, which is our highest authority. It was the Galatians' highest authority. Um, and this highest authority being Scripture, it, it shows that sinners are justified by faith apart from works of the law throughout Scripture. Uh, and he's obviously going to go more toward the Old Testament because that's what they had in written form at that time. This is the time where the New Testament was kind of being brought together when he's out doing ministry here. So, But he's going to take them to Scripture, which is the highest authority. And, and even in the Old Testament, we see very clearly that no one is justified by works of the law. And so that's, that's where he's going now in, in the narrative and in the book. And, and this section, I, I love how he devotes just a handful of verses to experience, but like almost two full chapters to the authority of Scripture relating to justification. So, right? So he doesn't talk about experience for two chapters. He talks about it for three or four verses. Now he's going to talk about Scripture. That's where we're going, and, and this section is much larger, so it's going to take multiple messages over the course of many weeks. Um, today we're going to look at a defense of justification by faith uh, from Scripture. We're just going to look at part one. You know I'm not fancy on titles, so it's just that part one. And uh, if you guys could please turn over to Galatians 3. We'll look at part one in verses 6 to 18. One of the challenges for me this last week was to figure out where to end. Should I end at verse 14? Should I end? I mean, you just you look at the different commentaries, and everyone is 
ending at different places. And after just reading through the text multiple times, it made sense to go to 18. So Galatians 3, 6 to 18, in this particular text, the Apostle Paul is going to answer three very important questions for us. So really the first question that, that Paul is answering through this text is this. Number one, are we sons of Abraham by the law or faith? Now you might be saying to yourself, well, as a Christian, I'm a, an adopted son of God. Amen. But you're also a grafted-in son of Abraham. Isn't that a unique thing and an interesting thing to ponder? How, how often do we think about that, that we're actually in the spiritual lineage of Abraham? This is an important thing, and, and this, this is precisely what Paul is going to teach us now. And we see this in verses 6 through 9. I'll read the text and I'll give you a commentary on it. This is what Paul says next. And, and some would say, well, verse 6 is really part of verse 5, but I think it fits better with, with verse 7. So this is how we're going to look at it. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, dot, 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 Know then, this is verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. I think that's the way the text is intended to be read. And verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Stop there. Paul begins his defense of justification by faith through Scripture by showing the example of Abraham, and he reviews the testimony of the Scriptures concerning faith and justification. And the first passage here is, is taken from Genesis 15, verse 6. This is where Paul goes. And that text says, Abram, and of course his name was Abram. He was called Abram before Abraham, shortly after he was called Abraham. Abram, same guy. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a verbatim quote from Genesis 15, 6 that Paul does here. Now, you need to understand that prior to his conversion, Abraham, I think, was a a pretty solid guy. He didn't believe in the true God because he didn't know the true God. But I think he was a religious man and um, a devoted man. He lived uh, a kind of moral life in these things. He had some character in these things. And, and I think he had a good standing with his peers and with his neighbors and all of that. But he, even though he had a good standing with men and he lived some kind of an upright life, this is certainly not what God drew, you know, that, that did not draw God to him. It had nothing to do with it. He was not in a right standing with God, even though he had an upright life and all these things. He didn't know God. He knew gods, the gods of the Chaldeans where he lived, but he didn't, I mean, he didn't know God. He wasn't an, an upright man before God, per se, only before regular men. In the sight of God, he was nothing more than a lost sinner, a rebel, uh, and he was, uh, quite frankly, under condemnation, just like the rest of the world is, John 3, 17. 
So he may have lived an upright life, but he was in a false religion, and uh, he was not justified before God by any means uh, prior to his conversion. He was just a, a good guy. Uh, we, we meet people like this in America once in a while, where you meet somebody who's kind of wholesome and old school, and they have that old way of thinking, but you know, it doesn't make them righteous before God if they don't know God. And those types of people, by the way, in our culture are few and far between now, right? That's really the industrial generation that's dying off now that was that way. Today, you've got the millennials, and there's no hope. <laughs> Except there's a few good millennials in here, you know, Cameron and Lily and anyone else who's in their age bracket. But. And the Gen Xers, it's our fault. We're their parents, essentially, and maybe the boomers like Dave. You don't see these. I have to go after him. He got a new truck. I mean, it's just, he gets a truck for Father's Day. I might get a smoker. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, but, you know, he was kind of like one of those old school guys, but he wasn't right with God. He believed in false gods and these sorts of things. And, and you know, ultimately, he became justified before God, not because of what he did of the upright life that he lived before men, he was justified before God. He was made righteous before God and justified because at some point he believed in the true God, because of faith. And, and this is just clearly stated in this text that Paul cites, right? Genesis 15, 6. And, and it's repeated by Paul again in Romans 4, 3, who's trying to make the same point to the Christians who lived throughout Rome. Now, Paul places the emphasis upon two words here. Um, and, and, and really, um, Moses, who recorded Genesis, placed the emphasis on the two words as well. But Paul does this here. And those two words are what? Abraham believed. Doesn't say Abraham worked. Doesn't say Abraham obeyed the law. He didn't even have the law. It came 430 years later. He believed. He believed. That's the emphasis. Abraham believed. And, and to believe in God as Abraham did is to be right with God because faith honors God. Faith is what honors God. Uh, Luther has a, a great comment here. He says, Faith in God constitutes the highest worship, the prime duty, the first obedience, and the foremost sacrifice. Without faith, God forfeits His glory, wisdom, truth, and mercy in us. The first duty of man is to believe in God and to honor Him with His faith. Faith is truly the height of wisdom, the right kind of righteousness, the only real religion. This is a great comment from Luther. What faith does is it, it says to God, I believe you exist. I believe what you say, and I trust you. That's what faith says to God. When, when you believe and, and you're trusting in God through Christ, that's what you're communicating. Yes, I believe you exist. I believe you created all of this. I believe it, and, and I believe your word. This is your written word. This is your recorded word, and I, and I believe what you've said in it. I, and I, I trust in you for my salvation, and I trust in your promises. I trust in what you've revealed here. That's what faith essentially is. And, and this, it's really dependence and, a, and an attitude of trust toward God. And, and that pleases God. 
I think more than anything, our dependence on him and our attitude toward him, it's, that is what pleases him. And I think that at a human level, I think us fathers in this room probably feel the same way. When our kids don't trust us and don't think that we're going to provide and all that, that tears your heart out, men, doesn't it? You know, if, if, if my child came to me and, I just don't know, Dad, you don't follow through. If he just didn't have trust, if he didn't have faith in me at some level, I think that would be very heartbreaking. And it would probably have been my own fault because I had been very reliable. And I think at a, at, a, at a divine level, God loves it when we trust in Him and believe in Him and put our hope in Him and believe that He's going to come through for us in those times where, where we need His help. That's really what we're talking about here. That's what faith is. It is a dependence on God. It is a, a positive attitude, a reliance toward God, and that pleases God. It's very pleasing to him. And, and I think this is what the author of Hebrews was after when he wrote. And, and believe it or not, Luther actually thought it was Paul. He thought Paul wrote Hebrews, and a great many of the older saints did. But this is what the author of Hebrews says. Maybe it was Paul, maybe it was Barnabas, who knows. I know who wrote it. It was the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he regards those who actually believe that and seek him. That's Hebrews 11.6. We've got a whole lot of people in this nation that, that, you know, that, that think they're pleasing God, yet they don't even really believe in him. They believe in the God that's on our money or the God that's in our pledge, which is not Christ, because if it were Christ, it would say Christ. It wouldn't say just God in a blanket, gen generic form. You, you have to... Believe that God exists. You have to trust God for God to be pleased. That's what pleases God. It's faith. And even simple faith. You don't have to have R.C. Sproul faith. Don't think that God is more pleased with, with somebody like R.C. Sproul who has more degrees than Fahrenheit versus Phil Baker who barely has a high school diploma. Faith, simple faith. The faith of a child is pleasing to God. Faith, to believe in God is to be right with God because faith honors and pleases God. On one occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, he says this to them, the Father himself loves you, John 16, verse 27a. The Father himself loves you. Why is it that the Father himself loved the disciples? Was it because the disciples were Jewish? Well, that makes no sense that God would love people based on their ethnicity or religious background. Was it because they were Jewish? And the Jews do believe that's why they're loved, because they're Jewish. And of course, they believe they're part of the Ab Abraham's family because they're Jewish. Was it because they were Jewish? Was it because the, the disciples were attentive to the law? Because that's what Jews did. Was it because they were as the Judaizers were arguing, was it because they had pleased God through circumcision? That somehow now God's favor was shining down on the disciples because they were all circumcised Jews. Now it didn't have anything to do with it. Jesus gives the answer in the second half of the verse. It was because they loved Jesus and believed the Father had sent him. John 16, 27b. Faith, 
Faith is tethered to the love of God there. The disciples were loved. The disciples were counted righteous. The, the disciples were justified, not by works, not by circumcision, not by anything else, but by faith, just like Abraham. They were justified by faith alone. Jesus tells them plainly. In verse 7, Paul kind of shifts a little bit and begins to describe sonship. Jews, as I said, believe they are sons of Abraham through natural means, through physical lineage, through their Jewishness. They call Abraham their father, and Jesus said things like, Abraham's not your father, the devil is. He said that to the Pharisees. Wow. But they believe they are sons of Abraham through natural means, through lineage. But Paul says, guess what? That has nothing to do with it. Newsflash. It is a matter of faith. Faith. If a person, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their lineage, regardless of their pedigree, which is a term that's used for dogs, but I hear it all the time for people today. He's a Doberman, I guess. If a person, regardless of any of that, has faith, it says right here very plainly, based on the Genesis text and what Paul is teaching here, he or she is a son or daughter of Abraham. Faith joins them to the spiritual family of Abraham, and more importantly, it joins them to the family of God. Being Jewish, obeying the law, getting circumcised, literally has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Because those are works. Not being Jewish. Being Jewish isn't a work, but doing the other things is a work. It's a faith thing. And, and this is a really fascinating that Paul is quoting Genesis here and this is what he's unpacking to these people. I mean, who is he talking to? Is he talking to Jewish people? No, he is in a sense to the Judaizers, but he's talking to Galatians. What are Galatians? Gentiles, non-Jews. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying here that you are in fact, through faith, members of Abraham's family. You're closer to Abraham than the Judaizers are who are Jewish. He's telling them, you belong to the spiritual family of Abraham. In fact, he's saying in a way, you're more Jewish than these Jews. This is what he's telling these people, and this is what he's saying to us. Are any of you in here, were you Jewish at one time? And you converted? You're a messianic? No, you're all Gentiles, right? We're just all dirty Gentiles. He was writing to people who were non-Jewish Gentiles, totally outside the nation, in the Jewish mind, totally outside the covenant promises or blessings, totally outside the nation. It, you know, it's like in Ripon, they say, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. In Israel, if you ain't Jewish, you ain't nothing. This is the way they thought. This is the way they think today. And we're just dying to help them out over there. Paul is saying that... that these Gentile believers are part of Abraham's spiritual family because of faith, not because of circumcision or anything else. This is what he's telling them. They are sons. They are daughters because they believe, not because of what they do. 
not because of what they do. And he will really expand on this as we continue to move through the text. They are sons and daughters because they believe the same is true of us. We are sons or daughters in the spiritual family and lineage of Abraham because we believe. What a, what a blessedness, what a blessed thing that I don't think we often consider. Now, you need to understand, as I've been saying, the Judaizers were ethnically and religiously Jewish, but they were not sons of Abraham. Why? Why were they not sons of Abraham? Because they added works to their justification. That's why. If you're going to be in the family of Abraham, you have to do as Abraham did. And what did Abraham do? He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham believed, got circumcised, and did a whole bunch of things, and then he was made righteous. He simply believed. He simply believed. In fact, he wasn't circumcised till 15 years after when he actually first believed. You can't even tie circumcision to any of this that's playing out with Abraham in Genesis 15. Understand, friends and family here, that if a person adds works to their justification, they are excluded from Abraham's spiritual family. Parallel to that, they are excluded from God's family. Abraham believed, and that's it. Therefore, we must believe and add nothing to it. Add nothing to it. We don't add the traditions of the Pope. We don't add books to our Bibles. We don't add circumcision or works. We don't add penance or any of the Roman Catholic schism. We add nothing. We believe. That's all that's required. That's all that's necessary. If you believe, you are fully and forever justified. It has nothing to do with your efforts or works. Nothing. This is the message of the whole book of Galatians, essentially. In verses 8 and 9, Paul cites another Old Testament passage, and then he unpacks its meaning. He points to Genesis 22, verse 18, where it says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Obeyed my voice, that's faith. You've got to have faith to obey his voice. Paul says when God declared this, he was, and this is Paul's interpretation, he says when, when God said this to Abraham way back then, way before Paul was talking to the Gentiles, way back, he said that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. How cool is that? Wow. How cool is that? He's preaching the gospel to Abraham. And then down in verse 18, Paul calls it a promise that was made to Abraham and his offspring. Paul is saying that the statement in Genesis 22:18, which he cites in our text here, verse 8b, is a gospel promise. God made a gospel promise to Abraham long before Jesus ever came, long before Paul was ever born long before Paul went out on his missionary journeys and planted churches in Galatia and all these other places. A gospel promise was made. It's twofold. What are the two parts of it? First, that God would, this is Paul's interpretation, first, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Verse 8a, the second fold, the second part, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 9 
So you've got a twofold uh, gospel promise that was made to Abraham according to Paul's interpretation of Genesis 22, verse 18. The gospel was preached in Genesis, ladies and gentlemen, not just in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, at the very beginning of it. This is a gospel promise. And it's not only a gospel promise, is it? It's a messianic prophecy that points to Jesus Christ. He is the offspring of Abraham that would come and what? Bless all the nations of the earth. How would he come? Well, it doesn't say in Genesis there, but we now know as we look at the New Testament, we know exactly how he came. And there's types and shadows of it in the, in the Old Testament, but the New Testament describes it explicitly. He would condescend. We're talking of Jesus Christ here, the coming Messiah. He would condescend, meaning he would step down out of heaven. He would be born of a virgin. This is talked about in the Old Testament, and we see it in the Gospels. He would live a perfect, obedient life. He would obey all of God's law satisfy the law he would die on a cross to pay for our sins he would be buried to settle our accounts with god he would rise from the grave three days later victorious over sin satan death and hell here's your easter message this is how he would come and what he would do how will christ bless all the nations of the earth okay because that's the prophecy of Genesis 22. How would he do that? Well, according to Paul's interpretation of that very verse, he will bless the nations of the earth by calling Gentiles, non-Jews, from every tribe and tongue to himself through works of the law? No, through faith. Through faith. God was preaching the gospel of good news to Abraham that he had a plan to save Gentiles not through works of the law but through faith. This was preached to Abraham thousands of years ago. Abraham lived like 2,000 years before Christ was born. Now, we need to keep in mind that God made this gospel promise to Abraham before the law was given. Well, wait a minute. You're saying that we're just, the Judaizers are saying that we're justified by works of the law. Well, how is it that Abraham was justified long before the law was ever given? How, the math doesn't work here. In fact, Paul says law was given 430 years later after Abraham was justified by faith. Verse 18, he's specific. 430, not 431, not 429. Now, 429 and three quarters. And this ultimately proves that God had planned to justify Gentiles, to justify Jewish sinners and Gentile sinners through faith the entire time. It's been God's plan since day one. It's always been through faith, always. It's never been through works. Well, it changed when the law came. No, it didn't. It did not change. But that's what the Judaizers would think and say. Well, it changed. It was a different disposition. Uh, 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 um, what do you call it? Not disposition, but a uh, uh, dispensation that we entered. No, 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 no. God's plan is and always has been justification by faith. It has been since the beginning. In fact, his plan predates the foundations of the world because we know that he set those aside. He was going to say before the foundations of the world ever existed. 
This, this plan was forged in eternity past. It's always been justification by faith. Never once, according to the one true God and the Word of God, has it ever been justification by works plus faith. Never. Never. I don't know why Roman Catholics don't get this. I want to pick on them, but they're determined to add those works. If, and think about it like this. Let's think logically, because logic is a friend if we do it right. If justification resulted from works of the law, what would happen to everyone, every saint who lived before the law? They'd be in hell. They'd had no way to earn their justification because they had no law to follow. Amen? So, so that means that Adam is in hell burning. Eve is in hell burning. Abel is in hell burning. Noah is in hell burning. Job, whom we've been studying, the most righteous man on earth at his time, he's in hell burning. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, do you want me to go on and on and on? All these faithful, godly men lived before the law was given. And if we are justified by the law, by works of the law, then these men and this woman Eve, they're all in hell frying because they had no law to follow. There's no redemption prior to the law then. That's how it has to be. And that's why Paul says, hey, 430 years after, hello, wake up. Am I getting through to you, Judaizers? You don't understand what you're saying here. Why are you following them, Gentiles? Faith justifies the sinner and makes them a son or daughter of Abraham. That's his point. Works of the law have absolutely nothing to do with it. Works of the law come after you're justified, after you're saved. Those are an expression of, those are an, an expression of our obedient love to God that we follow His law. And that's all after the fact. It's not before. It doesn't lead to anything. You need to understand this. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. Paul's telling me, hey, you guys, because you believe, you're Gentiles. You're not Jewish. Hey, wow, it'd be so much better for you to be Jewish. He's saying, no, it'd actually be worse because you'd probably be hung up on the law. At one point, Paul was out there ministering to Jews and said, I'm not dealing with you people anymore because you're determined to try to justify yourself through works. You hate Christ. You hate me. I'm going to the Gentiles. And this is the mentality today with Jews. They're determined to try to earn it. When the Galatians, these precious people that belong to the Lord, not the Judaizers, those are false teachers. When the Galatians believed the gospel, God joined them to the spiritual family of Abraham. He grafted them in. Romans eleven seventeen. they were grafted into the root or into the vine, so to speak. And they are, in a sense, the fulfillment of the gospel promise that we see in Genesis 22, 18, right? They are because it says that Christ, that the, the offspring of Abraham will bless the nations. And how does he do that? By giving faith to Gentiles, by giving the gift of faith to Gentiles and calling them to himself. Are these people not an expression of the fulfillment of that promise? They are. And guess what? So are you, if you believe, you Gentile believer. These Galatians were from one of the nations that would be blessed by Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, through faith. And we 
are the same. We're not Galatians, we're Americans. And we belong to one of the nations by which Jesus would bless. How would he bless our nation? With all this prosperity and all that, I guess. But ultimately, by granting faith to spiritually dead sinners. That's the fulfillment of the promise. And yet the Judaizers had claimed or charmed these Galatians into thinking that works of the law were necessary to keep that justification going. Is that not what the Pope does today? You better be a good Catholic. Better keep it up. Better keep coming to confession. Better keep coming to Mass. You guys close services down. How do I do that? You got to watch me do Mass on TV. It's boring to watch it in person. It's 10,000 times more boring to watch it on TV. Dominus, ominous, yundalila. It's like, get out of here. You're speaking in Latin. Nobody even knows what you're saying, bozo. That's cruel, but true. Paul is, is just telling the Galatians, and I think that they were reasonably well-versed in Scripture. Paul spent time with them and taught them the Word. Of course, they had access to the Old Testament, which was really all you had back then at that time before the New Testament was put together and came out in circulation, which was a few years later. But you know, he's just saying, look, go back to your highest authority. Your experiences are important, but go back to your highest authority in that Scripture. And what does Scripture say about Abraham? It says he believed and he was counted righteous. He believed and he was justified. You need to remember that. What they're telling you is hogwash. They're lying to you. Kick them out. He's saying, you remember Abraham, right? You know, you do know he lived before the law was given. In fact, it was 430 years earlier. <laughs> right? You remember that? Yeah. He believed and it was counted him righteous. It had nothing to do with obedience to the law. He was justified by faith alone. And that's what I'm telling you. You are, you are just like him. If you believe, you are justified just as he believed and was justified. God promised to justify and bless all who believe in Christ. Altogether, they are Abraham's spiritual offspring, his family members. That's the truth. Let's move to the second question. So how, how do you, how are you grafted in and part of Abraham's spiritual family? By works? No. By faith. That's the question he answers through that wonderful exposition or through his revelation. Number two, are we redeemed by the law or Christ? Now this is a matter of salvation here. To be redeemed is to be saved, is to be justified, is to be made righteous. Paul answers this one in... Verses 10 through 14, he says, "For and listen to this. I mean, okay. This is so clear. It's so clear. And yet, for a great many. Listen to what he says, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Did we read that correctly? For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And listen to this. He says, for it is written. Hey, he's saying this is not based on my interpretation. This is what Scripture itself says. Listen to what he says. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them all. This is what he says. And then in verse 11, he says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that uh, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul juxtaposes or compares and contrasts the blessed with the cursed. That's what he begins with. Who are the blessed? They are those who believe in Jesus Christ, right? Verse 9. They're part of the, 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 blessing, the blessedness of the nations that Christ will send faith to. They are the blessed. They are those who believe. They are the blessed. Verse 9. The cursed are those who do what here? Who rely on works of the law. Verse 10a. You have the blessed on one side. You have the cursed on the other. The blessed simply believed. The cursed add works of the law. Why are they cursed? Well, we know why they're blessed, because they have faith. But why are they cursed? Why are those who try to follow the law here and try to do works of the law, why are they cursed? He gives the answer in verse 10b, where he cites Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of the law by doing them. Now, I want to get something straight before we unpack what he means here. You need to understand that obedience to God's law does not bring curses. Okay? Obedience to God's law brings blessing. So that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying, well, if you try to obey God's law, if you seek to obey it, you're just automatically cursed. God wants us to obey his, his law. He does. So it's, it's not what he means. I think of it like this. A little bit later, just a, just a few chapters over in Deuteronomy 39 through 10, the same author, Moses, he writes this, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand when you obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. Obeying the law of God brings blessing. It doesn't bring curse. The text shows very clearly this truth. It is disobedience to God's law that brings a curse. Not obedience, disobedience. If a person disobeys one of God's commandments, they fall under a corresponding curse. And, and think of it like this. The law of God is intended to be fully obeyed, not partially obeyed. God demands that people obey his entire law, the entire law. It's intended to be fully obeyed. It gives no allowance, no grace for disobedience. It provides no mulligans, no do-overs. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Failure to comply in one area with one simple ordinance of God is tantamount to disobeying the whole law. This is what James says in chapter 2, verse 10 of his short, small epistle. It's not obedience to God's law that brings curse. It's disobedience to it. And here's reality. Fallen sinners are not capable of obeying all of God's commandments. That's a simple fact. The moment that you think you're doing well in one area, you're disobeying and breaking the law in the other. And those who, who are incapable and who disobey God's commandments, they fall under a curse from God for that disobedience 
whether they realize it or not. You don't even have to be cognizant or aware that the law exists. You can be like the Galatians and the Gentile just living your life. God's standards are there. You may not know about them, but they're still judging you. They're for everybody. The law exists to reveal God's holy standards. It exists to expose the sinner's inability to comply. The law says this, I have 613 ordinances categorized in three categories. They're under moral law and civil law and ceremonial law. Try to obey all of them if you can, but if you fail to obey them all, I can't make you righteous. And you will be under God's curse. Can you imagine being a Christian trying to obey all 613 ordinances? Now, the Judaizers probably cherry-picked those 613 and came up with eight solid ones and said, you believe and you follow these eight ones and you'll be justified. Now, I guarantee you they would have failed to obey one of the eight. We're not capable of, of, of obeying all of God's commandments. We're not capable of fulfilling them all. We're not capable of doing it consistently. The moment we get some area of victory here, we fail over here. I mean, Jesus amplified it. You know, the Pharisees were so self-righteous. They were like the Judaizers. In fact, I think the Judaizers came out of the Pharisaical movement. But they were so bad that when Jesus preached, like, the law of God, he would talk about adultery or something. And all the men there would say, well, I never cheated on my wife, so I'm good. And then Jesus says, oh, yeah, that's great. Wonderful. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? And all of a sudden, total silence. Because there isn't a man on earth, with the exception of Jesus Christ, who's been able to pull that one off. We can't fulfill it. We can't obey it all. And because we can't obey it all, we are under a curse. We disobey it, and that's what puts people under a curse. This is Paul's precise point in verse 10. In verse 11a, Paul is essentially saying no one will be made right with God. No one will be justified before him through works of the law because no one can keep the law perfectly. The only way to be justified by the law is perfect obedience. And we can't do that. So we cannot, through works of the law, earn our justification. The moment we're doing okay here, we fail over here. This is what he's saying. Because remember, the Judaizers are trying to add law, right? We can't obey this law. We, 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 we can't obey it. If we could obey the law the way the Judaizers were saying you could, we'd have no reason to have Jesus. We don't need Jesus because then we'd be able to justify ourselves through our own works of the law. The reason why Jesus came was because the whole world failed to do this. Most of the world doesn't even know it's supposed to do it. I didn't know that. Did you? That's Paul's point. The law says, I have so many ordinances, don't even try. Go to Jesus. That's his job. Verse 11b, Paul points to the clear teachings of Scripture again. This time he cites Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. He doesn't say the righteous shall live by faith. A combination of faith and works. They live by faith. Those who are right with God live by faith, not works of the law. The 
passage from Deuteronomy that Paul cited. It proves that justification cannot be by the law. There's just too much law. You can't do it. And the passage from Habakkuk proves that it must be by faith alone. Verse 11b to 12, Paul talks about how uh, the ways of the law and faith are mutually exclusive. They're two completely different systems. The righteous live by faith, right? Their daily lives are marked by a simple trust in Jesus Christ. They rely on His finished work, what He did on the cross for them, right? They rest in the righteousness that He alone provides. They're not trying to create their own righteousness. They're resting in the righteousness that He imputed to them. They know that they are justified by faith alone. The righteous, those who live by faith, they, they do not rely on works of the law. They may perform works of the law, but they're not reliant on those works of the law. They just do them because that's the right thing to do. That pleases God. They do good deeds because they love the Lord, not because they're trying to earn their way with God. That's what the people of faith do. That's what they should be doing. The cursed, because remember, we're talking about two different groups. The cursed, what do they do? Do they live by faith? No, they live by the law. Their daily lives are marked by a focus on God's commandments and, and, and all the traditions that have been added, the, the papal traditions, the, the Jewish traditions. You've got all these extra things. You know, it, It's bad enough that you've got 613 commandments you have to follow in Judaism, but you have two books' worth of traditions, too. Have fun with that. When you crash and burn, come talk to me and I'll give you the gospel. The, the, the curse live by the law. They're always focusing on God's commandments and on those traditions and all those things they, they must do because they've been taught they must do them. And they think the, the law will justify them, so they rely on personal effort and obedience. They're not trusting and relying on Christ. They trust in their own efforts, their own whatever they're trying to muster up. And they do good deeds, not because they love the Lord, but because they believe it's required. I have to do these things. If I, if, I, if I do enough of them, God will be pleased and justify me and let me in. He'll say, Peter, kick the door open for Phil. He's a really good performer. And guess what else the cursed who live by the law do? They rest in their accomplishments, not the righteousness of Christ. The end of verse the end of verse 12 is a jackhammer. It's directly from the law book, Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5. The one who does them shall live by them. That is a warning to all who seek to be justified through works of the law. That is a warning to everyone who thinks that way. This is a warning to every Roman Catholic. God's written law itself marks the danger of trying to live up to its standard, which is perfection. If a person is relying on works of the law as their means of justification, then they have to live by those laws perfectly. The moment they break one, justification is gone. How do you get it back? Roman Catholicism tells you, go to penance, do this, do 24 Hail Marys and a thousand Our Fathers, and then somehow you mystically get it back. You don't get it back. Once you break the law, you're always a lawbreaker. It is required, perfect obedience. That's the warning there, right, in Deuteronomy. The one who does the law has to live by the law, has to carry it out perfectly. 
And right there, we ought to say to ourselves, I know I can't do that. What's the alternative? Faith. You need to understand that, and, and, and I think this is the trick the devil plays on people's minds. He helps them to believe that partial obedience is pleasing to God and okay. Do you know what partial obedience is? Disobedience. Don't sugarcoat it. We don't need to try to sugarcoat it here. Failure to obey, if you want to live by the law and, and you fail to obey it at any juncture, you're under a curse. And you will fail, and you have failed. You failed today on your way here. Probably didn't love your neighbor when he was driving four miles an hour on McHenry. He thought he was cruising. It was 1989. You said hi to him with one finger. You didn't love your neighbor. You broke the law. You're going to hell. You're cursed. It's that simple. MacArthur says to, to live by faith is to respond to God's grace, which leads to justification and eternal life. To live by the law is to live by self-effort, which leads to failure, condemnation, and death. Uh, never was a truer statement ever uttered. That's the truth. The law shouts, if you rely on me for justification, know that you must obey my every statute, and there is no room for error. Disobedience brings a curse that you cannot reverse. Your best option is to trust in the one who satisfied all my demands. The Lord Jesus Christ, believe on him and you will be made righteous. You will be justified forever and ever and ever. That's the point of the law. You hold the law up and it says, you can't do this. This guy that died on a cross did it for you. Believe in him and you will be justified. Stick to me and you will go to hell because you're cursed. It's that simple. The purpose of the law is not to provide sinners with a platform by which they try to earn their justification. It is to point to Jesus who justifies sinners through faith alone. Luke 24, 44, Romans 5, 1. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the law and the prophets and the Psalms all point to me. In verse 13, Paul points the Galatians to the gospel again, right? He gets a little bit more gospel explicit here. This time he talks about what happened on the cross. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The law brings a curse, right? Because we disobey it. Everyone who breaks the law is under a curse. And that is the entire human race. Especially those who deliberately attempt to obey the law for justification. Roman Catholics and so on. Jews. But when Jesus died on the cross, he bore this curse on his own body to redeem those who believe in him. He became the curse for those who are under the curse. He bore the excruciating pain and, and curse of crucifixion. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 verse 3. Why? In order to redeem sinners from the curse of the law. When a person trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation, this curse is lifted and that person is set free. Set free. Never to be in bondage again. 
never to go back to the law. Never. They are no longer under that curse. But when a sinner relies on the law for justification or disregards the law altogether and pretends it doesn't exist, or maybe they don't know it exists, that curse remains on them in full force. The removal tool is faith in Jesus Christ, not works of the law. Faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the one who removes the curse is the only thing that can remove the curse from you. That's the truth. The law brings a curse. Faith in Jesus brings justification and eternal life. The law condemns. Jesus redeems. That's the gospel. Tell me this isn't good news. We're bound by a law we can't follow. We're doomed because of it. But if we believe in Jesus, we're rescued from the law. This is the good news, family. This is the good news. Verse 14, Paul describes who the, the blessing of Abraham and promised Holy Spirit comes through and how they are received. It comes through Abraham's offspring, right? This is all prophetic there that he's describing here. It comes through Abraham's offspring who is Christ Jesus. And this, this blessing, these blessings in Jesus Christ and these blessings, they are received by faith. Faith alone, not through works of the law. That's Paul's major point here at the end of this text. Now we move to the third and final question. Number three, is our inheritance earned or the result of God's promise? We see this in verses 15 to 18. Paul says it like this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, it's not plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, he repeats it, who is Christ? He is the offspring of Abraham. And he says in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, speaking of Abraham, after Abraham lived, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Paul knows that the Judaizers will object to his, his interpretation of Scripture. He knows that. He anticipates the argument they will try to make. What would it be? It would be that the Mosaic law somehow overrides all previous covenants and promises, even those given to that special guy named Abraham. That's the argument they'll try to raise here. Yeah, well, you know, we were under a dispensation of faith before that, and then once the law came, now we're under a dispensation of law. That's what they'll try to argue. Before the law was given, sure, God had a system of faith in place, but this system was eventually replaced with the law. Therefore, justification now comes through a combination of faith plus works of the law. That's what they'll try to argue. That's the way they think. I, I love the, the, the uh, discernment that the Holy Spirit gave the Apostle Paul. He anticipated that as he was writing these sorts of things that, that the enemies that got their hands on this stuff would object, and he anticipates the precise objection they would make. And that is it here. Well, we're just under a different time period, Paul. Now we're under the law. In verse 15, Paul responds to this type of faulty reasoning by giving a human example. 
When two people make a covenant, covenant is simply another word for contract, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Once that thing is signed, it's done. You cannot breach, you cannot modify. That's how it works with us. Go buy a car on payments, then go back about six months later and try to break your contract. You'll get what's called a chargeback. They'll take the car back and they'll charge you a whole bunch of money on it that they would have made. When two people make a covenant, they, it's not annulled. It can't be annulled or modified or adjusted once it has been finalized, once it has been ratified. And this was especially true in antiquity. Modifying or breaking a covenant was a serious crime back in Paul's day and back in Abraham's day more particular. In some cases, it was punishable by death. You say, well, that's pretty extreme. Well, you know what? Adultery breaks what covenant? The marriage covenant, doesn't it? And guess what happened to adulterers and adulteresses back in Abraham's day? Even in Paul's day, a couple thousand years later, they were put to death. If the husband went outside of his marriage, he was put to death. And guess what? So was the woman he was with, or man. Both were killed. Leviticus 20.10. That's an example of the seriousness of a covenant between two people. Marriage is one of the highest examples of that. You go outside of that marriage today, you got a no-fault divorce in California. You can get divorced. It doesn't matter what you do. It's a disgrace. Back in that day, you'd be killed for going outside of that marriage. Frank Sinatra got arrested for adultery. He'd have been killed back in Abraham's day. Paul's point here is fairly simple. And what is it? Man-made covenants are serious. No one is permitted to cancel or modify them once they are finalized, once they are ratified. And here's his big point. How much more serious are the covenants of God? They're far more higher and more serious than any man-made covenant. He's saying through his example here, no one is permitted to cancel or modify God's covenants either. This rule applies to, to the covenant promise between God and Abraham. In other words, the Mosaic law did not render that covenant promise void. It did not break it or finalize it or, or bring it to an end. It is still in place. The law was given to Moses 430 years later. It changed not the covenant given to Abraham. In fact, it accentuates it. That's what Paul talks about later in this text. In fact, in verse 16, Paul argues that the covenant promise given to Abraham is superior to the Mosaic law because it is Christ-centered. It is through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, that this covenant promise was made and will be fulfilled. Christ will bless the nations of the earth by calling Gentiles from every tribe and tongue to himself through faith. That's the covenant promise. The Mosaic law does not stop that. If it did, none of us in this room would be saved. The law makes promises. It says, if you obey my statutes, you will be blessed. If you disobey them, you will be cursed. There's a promise for you. The newly formed nation of Israel needed rules. Like every other society needs rules. That's when the law was given, when that nation was first forming together. The law was given to them for that purpose. It contains types and shadows that point to Christ. The sacrificial system is an example, but it goes no further than that. The covenant promise given to Abraham goes much further in that it is entirely about Christ and it is entirely about justification by faith alone. It is superior to the Mosaic law in that regard. In verse 
17, Paul drives this point home by declaring that the Mosaic law, which came 430 years later, does not in any way nullify the covenant promise made to Abraham. In fact, in verses 19 to 29, Paul describes how the law is helpful regarding the covenant promises of God. It served as a type of guardian until the offspring of Abraham arrived, Jesus Christ. The law was given to preserve the seed. That's it. Verse 18, Paul makes another solid point that supports his full argument here. He speaks of inheritance. How is an inheritance obtained? It is passed down. It is bequeathed by one party to another. A deceased father leaves something for his child. Believers have an inheritance. It is uh, as it says in 1 Peter 1, 4, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept in heaven for God's people, for you and I. Is the believer's inheritance something that is earned? Huh? Does it come through works of the law? Well, the Judaizers think so. Or is it something that that person receives as a result of God's promise? An inheritance based on law, uh, it depends on man's performance, doesn't it? Perform well, you get the inheritance. Don't perform well, you don't get it. From some 80s movies that I've seen, that's how it worked with the rich dad and the rebellious kid. That's not actually the way an inheritance works. Even the bratty, disobedient kid gets a chunk from his dead dad. He didn't do anything to earn it. An inheritance based on God's promise depends on God, His faithfulness, His power, doesn't it? One depends on our ability, the other depends on God's promise and His power. By definition, an inheritance is not earned, it is simply received. And to work for that which is already guaranteed is totally foolish and unnecessary. Trying to earn the inheritance God promises through faith in His Son is much worse than just regular old foolishness. To add works to the law, add works of the law to faith in God's promise is to nullify the grace of God and to cause Christ to have died for no purpose. That's what we studied back in chapter 2, verse 21 of Galatians. The Judaizers were saying that inheritance comes through works of the law. You have to earn it. But Paul says, no, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The promised inheritance, it, it comes in the same way through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. And how is it received? Through works of the law? Absolutely not. It is received by faith. That's his point. You, if you are in Christ, have an inheritance coming to you, and it is grand and glorious beyond anything you've ever experienced on this side of heaven. But guess what? It's coming to you not because of what you did. It's coming to you because of what Christ did and because you believe in Him. You're trusting in Him. You're believing that He has an inheritance for you. In fact, He's up there preparing a mansion for you. Sounds pretty good, huh? Can't wait to get out of my neighborhood. Let's summarize as we wrap up. How do we become a son or daughter of Abraham? Is it by the law or faith? These are the main points. Abraham believed 
Therefore, we must believe. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works of the law. If we believe in him, we belong to the spiritual family of Abraham. More importantly, we belong to the family of God. We have been grafted in. We have been adopted. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The end of Romans 8. Nothing. It's done. It's ratified. It's complete. It's finished. In fact, Scripture, I think, in Ephesians even talks about how we're already seated with Christ. Well, I don't feel seated with Him, but in some kind of spiritual way, I'm already with Him there. It's done. You become a son or daughter of Abraham, more importantly, of God, through faith, not through works of the law. How are we redeemed? Is it by the law or Christ? We are redeemed by Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How is the law-satisfying, curse-destroying work of Christ appropriated to sinners like you and I? Through faith alone, not through works of the law. If we trust in him, he sets us free from that curse once and for all. It's a faith thing. Is our inheritance earned or the result of God's promise? Hmm? You think you're earning something from God through your works? <laughs> you may as well stop. It is a result of God's promise, the promise he made to Abraham before the law was given. It is fulfilled in Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, and it is appropriated to sinners like you and I through faith alone, not through works of the law. We are not earning our inheritance. It is guaranteed by the very promise of the immutable, unchanging God. If we believe in Jesus Christ, the inheritance is ours. And guess what? The presence of the Holy Spirit in us is the deposit and guarantee of that future inheritance. Have you not read Ephesians 1.14? That's exactly what it says. Paul defended justification by faith by showing from Scripture the centrality of faith regarding sonship and redemption and inheritance. These things come to us through faith alone, not by works of the law. If we believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are justified, and God confers, He gives, He grants these blessings to us. These things are ours. If we rely on works of the law for justification, we are cursed because we cannot obey the whole law. If we mingle faith with works for justification, we nullify the grace of God and cause Christ to have died for no purpose. You know, one of my, just a last thought, one of my favorite TV shows, it's quickly becoming Cobra Kai. Pretty good stuff. Not too bad. Anyone else watch it? Boy, I, I'm, I'm lame because there's only like three people in here that watch it. Some won't admit to it. Cameron and others. I'll make sure they know. That's not one of my favorite shows on TV. One of my favorite shows on TV is The Mandalorian. I think it's wonderful. It's the best thing Disney's done in a long time. Of course, they're trying to screw it up by canceling people out, cast members, but, you know. And my favorite saying from that show is, this is the way. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? If you've seen the show, you know that's what Mandalorians say to one another. This is the way. 
such a cool saying. It's actually the Mandalorian Creed. It's the code by which all Mandalorians are to live their lives. Well, guess what? We Mandalorian Christians have a creed. We have armor. By the way, it's 10,000 times stronger than that stuff they wear. We have a creed. What is our creed? Justification by faith alone. This is the way. That is the way. That is the way. Justification by faith alone. That, that is the biggest thing and, and motto or a mantra to come out of the Reformation. It is the point of this glorious book called Galatians. It is the point of this entire book called Holy Scripture, called the Bible. That is our creed. Justification by faith alone. This is the way, this is the code by which we are to live our lives. And it is the message that we must share with others. Amen.